1: And Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: President Trump moving to revoke Hong Kong's trade status, this stoking China rift even further and the latest out of Minneapolis, we're going to check in with the Washington Post James Homan. What does it all mean for 2020? Marianne Williamson is in the house. She will give us her take and a complete update on what is going on with the economy. A lot to get through on what has been a dizzying news day inside of the nation's capital. I'll tell you what I heard about on Capitol Hill from Congressman Brad Sherman as well. You know, I started off the morning, I got off of uh, Bloomberg surveillance and I thought I gotta get my coffee. So I go to Starbucks, you know, not Wawa because it's closer, so I go in and I'm used to the curbside pickup, folks. <laughs> Next thing I know, they say, no, you can come in. And I, I got filled with tears. I thought, I can go into a coffee shop. Mayor Bowser, Mayor Muriel Bowser, Democrat mayor of the city. It's all in full effect, folks. We can now go into coffee shops. See, we're making it through. We're going to get to a very special guest, Marion Williamson, here. You moved to D.C. yesterday or recently. Yeah. Well, we have a lot to catch up on, my Thank friend. Thank you. So we're going to hold that because it was a dizzying, dizzying, Newsday. And that's why I'm so grateful to have James Homan, national political correspondent for The Washington Post and author of The Daily 202. James, you must have had a busy day as well. Let's start with the president's decision to revoke Hong Kong trade status. It wasn't much of a press conference this afternoon in the Rose Garden. He just spoke for about 10 minutes. But this is a monumental shift in U.S.-China policy. Is it not, James
3: Yeah, Kevin, it's a huge shift, and it really is, uh, you know, for Hong Kong, uh, they see it as a double-edged sword where this is the kind of the end of Hong Kong as a second system. And the president, you know, we always have to see the, the fine print, and we always have to see what actually happens. He nodded that there will be few exceptions. We don't know fully what those exceptions are, but the president taking a very hard line against Hong Kong, uh, as part of uh, a, a much more hard line against China and it's really notable because you know I, I wrote a lot last year about how during the mass protests uh, in the streets the president wasn't taking a hard line uh, the president you know wasn't speaking up for the the demonstrators and so this was kind of a, a jarring shift after after how cautious he was all of last year
2: and you can't separate this or divorce this from China's, the Communist Party of China's lack of transparency uh, uh, from COVID-19. You know, I was up on Capitol Hill earlier today, James, and I was speaking with Congressman Brad Sherman, a Democrat from California, and I asked him point blank, I said, you know, did COVID-19 and China's lack of transparency around this really lead to some of these policies that we're seeing? And he said yes. I mean, and he he was really candid about this, and he's a Democrat, he's a liberal. He said, look, a lot of Democrats want to turn turn around every time the president tweets, but he's, you know, on the issue of China, whether it's Mark Warner, whether it's Brad Sherman, whether it's Chris Van Hollen, they're all aligned and understand that what we're watching right now is a significant change in how the United States conducts its foreign policy with China. Not how the Republicans do it, not how the Democrats do it, but collectively how the United States do it. And, you know, let's not forget that there were hundreds, more than 200 businesses, James, that were trading on U.S. exchanges from China, not having to do disclosures. And that's what Congressman Sherman is working on, a Democrat with Republicans. So I asked him if more legislation is going to come out, James. He says Congress, he and Congressman Yoho are actually uh, developing additional legislation regarding China's internment camps for the Uyghur mm. religious people. I mean, it's. So, yeah. I, from your reporting, James, what can you tell us about how Republicans and Democrats are are kind of on the same page on this?
3: Yeah, Kevin, it really is remarkable because it does feel like this is the sort of the beginning of a new Cold War with Beijing, and the attitude really has shifted so dramatically on Capitol Hill in a in a really bipartisan way. Uh, and I think that this coronavirus and the lack of transparency really was the tipping point that, that pushed us this direction.
2: Okay, and the United States will also terminate its support for the World Health Organization, the president said earlier this afternoon. He claims the agency has been manipulated by Beijing during the pandemic and was under the total control of China. Do we know specifically, or are we going to have to wait a couple of days to find out what terminating the support for the WHO means?
3: Yes, we are going to have to wait a little bit. You know, the, the, this has been a point of contention, and as you know, and we know from our reporting inside the White House, which is, you know, do you take 90 percent of the money away so that you still have a seat at the table and that you're still getting some of the work product that they're putting out, or do you really cut them off completely? The president, you know, again, the details always in the fine print, the president announcing we're cutting them off completely, uh, but we'll see what that that actually looks like, and we'll see if uh, you know a notice actually goes to the WHO. Obviously, there's value when it comes to public health to cooperating, but the Chinese have clearly been in the driver's seat there, and uh, you know, and, and the U.S. government does feel like, at the very least, the WHO needs uh, significant reforms, and so this might give us some leverage. Uh, to exact, you know, to negotiate some some changes at the organization.
2: We're going to check in with John Cittolini. coming up later on in the program, a a career-long State Department official. He's going to give us another update and another look at the Hong Kong issue. James Homan's on the line. He is a national political reporter for The Washington Post, of course, the author of The Daily 202, a must-read here inside of the Beltway. Uh, James, let's turn to domestic politics and race relations, and we'll get Marianne Williamson to talk about this as well coming up. But the president... I mean, how has – what are you hearing from your sources close to the White House about how they feel the president has handled Minneapolis and these tweets?
3: Well, I just think there's a lot of – there's a lot of bafflement, uh, of, of frustration. But also, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of Republicans actually that I talked to, including some congressional Republicans today, don't think it's going to be as bad for the president – uh, there were some Republicans I talked to who think that it might sort of redound to his advantage, uh, that he looks like he's projecting calls for law and order and that he, uh, you know, that it, 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 this issue that would have been a lot tougher related to, uh, racial discord and justice for George Lloyd is now kind of, a, a, a you know, bring the peace, you know, law and order situation. So there's actually, um, you the, the, the I think people are in some ways kind of desensitized to the language that we heard in the president's tweets last night. The president cleaned up his language a little bit, walked it back this afternoon. Um, you know, on the on the Democratic side, there's a the, the you know, the focus is very much on, on kind of the long term racial inequities in the country and, and police brutality. On the Republican side it's very much on kind of the, the riot side of things. And, um, you know, in the, in the kind of chaos and protests, you know, that, that set a precinct headquarters in Minneapolis on fire.
2: All right, James Homan, we're going to have to leave it there. Coming up, we'll dive into the tech angle of this as well. Censorship potentially coming from Twitter. Facebook and Twitter are having a very different relationship right now with President Trump. James Homan, thank you, my friend. I appreciate it, buddy. Hey, great stuff in the Daily 202. You've got to read it. You've got to read The Washington Post Daily 202. Uh, That's James Homan, national political reporter for The Washington Post. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Marianne Williamson is up next. She's here in the house. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
0: In a
4: way, I think part of the value of this situation is it's turned us into a we. Mm -hmm. And... You know, we were just a collection of me's before. So it's what matters for us too, what matters for us as a nation and what matters for us as a world, um, to, to move our consciousness. And, you know, we've done so much to spiritualize our own personal lives, but now to extend that, so it's a spiritualization of the entire world, what matters for us as a human race, what matters for us as a country.
2: That was my first introduction when I was a kid growing up in Delco to Marianne Williamson when she spoke on the Oprah Winfrey Show shortly after September 11th, and she spoke about Muslims in America. And I thought, when I knew she was coming on the program today uh, to catch up with us and about what she's been up to, but I thought when I was preparing for today's program with this horrific spasm of racial tension in our country coming out of Minneapolis... (coughs) and the horrific tragedy of George Floyd, I really couldn't get those remarks, Marianne, out of my mind. And so i got to ask you, as you've been processing what's been happening in Minneapolis and what's been happening with the death of George Floyd, how have you been processing that?
4: What happened with George Floyd, this is not just about that. Every crisis has to do with more than just the incident that explodes. It has to do with the thousands of men who preceded him, who met with such lack of justice, such lack of mercy. And it's like this was just one too many things. When I was running for president, I was talking about racial reconciliation quite a bit, a solid program of reparations, talking quite a bit about economic injustice towards black people, environmental injustice towards black people, criminal injustice towards black people. This did not just begin. So we now have a stage four cancer, but many of us were talking about it when it was at a stage one and a stage two. I know throughout my work for years, in my books, et cetera, and certainly my political campaign, I was very clear, we better do something about this or this is going to blow. Because people can be oppressed for just so long. You know, today is John F. Kennedy's birthday, and he, one of his lines was, uh, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. So there is so much that could have been done and that should have been done over the last 40 and 50 years to continue our journey of real racial justice in the United States. And in some ways, not only have we not continued a journey towards justice, but in many ways we have fallen backwards and created more injustice than was even there before. So
2: here we are on a Friday as every news agency, including Bloomberg News, has been reporting the protests are now spreading around the country. Here we are on the eve of a Friday, and you see these images coming out of Minneapolis last night. You see the flames, you see the protests, you see the anger, the anger. What, what type of leadership needs to emerge, not six months from now, not four years from now, not in the next cycle, now, tonight, Friday evening, in the communities, in the cities? What do the what What do the community leaders, not they don't have titles, the community leaders need to be doing tonight, in this moment?
4: I have been impressed by the speeches made by the mayor of Minneapolis. I've been impressed by the uh, words of the governor of Minnesota. I was certainly um, uh, I I I. I felt very satisfied with the fact that uh, Chauvin was taken uh, into custody today and that they did bring charges of third degree murder. However, I have seen uh, so many tweets from congressmen and senators saying this same old, same old justice must be done. And if I hear one more of those, um, it's it's too late for that. It's time for action. The FBI said 10 years ago that the largest domestic terrorist threat in the United States was white nationalism and white supremacy. White supremacists have clearly infiltrated now some major American institutions. And clearly, it is legitimate to talk about that in terms of American law enforcement. Too many of these situations have occurred now. Something is going on. We need full-on congressional hearings where the FBI gives a full public accounting of everything that they know regarding the infiltration of American law enforcement by white supremacist groups.
2: Almost a special commission.
4: Uh, en- enough with the commission, okay? Mm. Enough with the commission, because in- enough with a forum. I-, I noticed that on the presidential campaign. We don't need another commission to to know the ravages of slavery. We really kind of get it now. It's time to put a number on the table, and we don't need another commission about white supremacy in America. We can see it with our own eyes. You see and it, and it on the YouTube. FBA. That's right, and the and that's part of the problem of leadership not talking about it, because it's it's making people go insane. It's like you know what this is like. This is like. Children in an alcoholic home with alcoholic parents, and the kids know that this craziness is going on, and the parents aren't speaking to it. As I said before, the FBI first talked about the infiltration of law enforcement by white supremacist groups 10 years ago. I remember it, Kevin, and I remember the, uh, how certain politicians suppressed the conversation and didn't want to talk about it. We have a problem in this country with radicalization. Just like the air in the Middle East, we talk about uh, radicalization into fundamental, uh, you know, Islam. We have a problem with uh, radicalization into Nazi and white supremacy in this country, and we need to stop pretending it's not happening.
2: And it's it's very. This is a very <coughs> difficult story to report on for a, a host of different reasons. But the president tweeted what he did. You know, he tweeted quote. Uh, the wh- when when comes the looting there's the shooting now he has since tweeted in the past hour and I don't want to paraphrase the president's Twitter to walk it back tra- just, uh, d- largely being perceived as you just said as trying to walk it back we heard from James Home. he said three hours ago he tweeted quote looting leads to shooting and that's why a man was shot and killed in Minneapolis on Wednesday night or look what just happened in Louisville with seven people shot I don't want this to happen And that's what the expression put out last night means. It was spoken as a fact, not a statement. It's very simple. Nobody should have any problem with this other than the haters and those looking to cause trouble on social media. Honor the memory of George Floyd. So there's that.
4: He said it as a warning. It was very clear that he himself was making a warning. And if we look at the whole tweet, that's obvious to anyone.
2: So what's another layer to this is the president was sparring today with Jack Dorsey of Twitter. Because Twitter last night labeled the tweet from the president as inciting violence or glorifying violence. That is for it. That is coming at a time in which less than a few hours before the president put out an executive order looking into how social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook are censoring or not censoring or monitoring some of this hate speech it is a very complex issue that's why i'm so grateful that you're here we're going to talk about it coming up we're also going to talk about the economy and what your plans are for washington dc Maria williamson is in the house you can download the bloomberg sound on podcast on apple itunes or at bloomberg.com i'm kevin cirilli chief washington correspondent for bloomberg tv and radio and you're listening to bloomberg 99.1
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Hey, the restrictions are starting to lift, but don't be foolish. You know, we still got to wear the masks. You know, you still got to be socially distant. Follow the, the lines on the... It's like you're in kindergarten again with all those marking, like line leader, you know, door holder and line leader, you know. You g- g- flash I- Congressman Sherman on the hill today. He had his ma- he with his mask on, and an elbow. You know, no handshakes, no nothing, nothing. Marianne Williamson's still here. Marianne, it's great to have you here. Thank you. It's What great have to you be- been up to since the? I, I mean, since the pandemic, since the campaign, what if, what is life like for Miriam Williamson? These well, days? the
4: life for Miriam Williamson is like for everyone else during this pandemic. Um, it's emotionally and psychologically trying, but I also think that this has been a a great reckoning for the United States. And I'm I'm very aware that there are millions of people who have economic issues and um, other, other levels of, of horror like avalanches upon them right now. We had even before the pandemic, 40% of Americans who couldn't afford a $400 unexpected expenditure. And now with all that they have gotten for a bailout is that one time $1,200 uh, payout Plus in, in, an increase in employment. How many have not been able to get their empl- unemployment? How many were not eligible? You know, when you look at that compared to other countries where, <clears throat> other countries where, it, let's say in England, where 80% of people's salary was given to them in, in a matter of direct cash relief. That's a kind of freezing of the economy that we needed. You know, you were talking earlier about Hong Kong being an ATM for China. In, uh, in Vietnam, The way they have handled the pandemic, they have created ATM-like machines on the streets to dispense rice. So in addition to the horrible eviction problem that so many millions of Americans are facing as we speak, there's also a hunger issue. We had 40 million hungry people in the United States even before this happened. I think the amount of horror, you know, when you ask me how am I doing, yeah, it's stressful. What is that compared to the millions, tens of millions of Americans for whom this is devastating on a level of de, of the depression? This no, is depression-level no, social I No, mean, it is. Social I mean, we
2: were re- reporting on that. I mean— but we had our, my friends over at DC Scores on just the other week, and one of the thing that haunts me is this notion of, you know, DC Scores does such great work for literacy in our dish, in the district <coughs> and uh, free after school soccer programs for for uh, for students, and it haunts me that one of the things they found that so many families right now, they might have multiple children in their families, and they're asking their they're sharing their their parent, many times a single parent's cell phone. To be educated. I mean, you think of that just on a family level, um, the technological divide in our, just in America. I mean, it's, 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 we have to try to comprehend it because, because it might feel incomprehensible, but you know what, for that family, they've got to figure it out. So we should have to figure it out too
4: the fact that we have not been taking a deeper look at the suffering of others is what got us part of what got us into this position. Okay. We also have a high increase in domestic violence because mm-hmm. the 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 abused is now even spending 24 hours with the abuser and that includes of course many children whose only safe space was when they went to school. I do want
2: to ask you one question before we bring in our next guest into the conversation to talk about the economy, but I want to ask you about China, the Communist Party of China specifically. You <coughs> and I have talked about this offline and uh, you know, I'm curious for you, Do you must have concern? I mean, I, you have concerns about the Communist Party of China. Well,
4: it's interesting. I agree. The things you were saying on your program earlier, during my campaign, people would say to me, can you, can you say one nice thing about Trump? Is there anything you could say you agree with him? And I would often say, well, I agree with some of his stuff about China. It's time somebody stood up. To China, how he has done it—all of the specifics—I don't necessarily always agree with. But uh, as you were as you were reporting earlier, when this first the first problem happened with uh, Hong Kong, I was uh, distressed by the by the president's silence and the fact that uh, he is taking some action. Um, I, I agree also with the Washington Post reporter who said, let's wait and see what's in some of these details. But uh, yes, absolutely. Whether it has to do with the Uyghurs, these, these people, and of course, look what they've been doing to Tibet for many, many years. This is not new. They're very oppressive behavior. Towards those that uh, they do not, uh, who do not tow the line as they see the line should be towed, we should stand always on the side of those seeking equality and freedom
2: and liberty. All right, Marianne, stay with us because I want to bring into the conversation Stephen Wood, who is an economist of sorts, uh, who joins us via telephone. Stephen, how are you? Do we have Stephen? Looks like we do not have Stephen yet. Okay. Oh. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. Technologi- Listen, I've had so many work-from-home technological difficulties during all of this. I've had dogs barking on air from sources at the State Department. I've had uh, everything, so don't worry. How, um, no, no, thanks for having me. We were talking about the economy with Marianne, and, and I want to get your vantage point on this because the economic indicators here are just... Baffling. Where do you see the economy? Do we? Do you think, from a macro perspective, that we've bottomed out yet, or is the are we still not to the worst of it?
5: Disconnect between what the market is saying and what uh, what I'm seeing. I, I spend most of my time talking with business managers, and it is um, just like Marianne referenced. It is we're seeing depression level uh, statistics and conditions. At the same time. Uh, You know, a company that I'm on the board with, we do logistics for the entire country of Portugal. We've seen a tremendous resilience of particularly small and medium-sized businesses um, that have been able to – some of them have been able to adapt. Um, And it's – you know, the market thinks that it's only uh, Facebook, Amazon – you know, Google uh, winning, but it's actually, we're seeing uh, quite a lot of small businesses actually make or breaking themselves right now. The interesting thing, and, and, and Marianne can speak to this, she's an expert in this, um, a lot of people are operating in a survival mode right now, and that's the sort of the amygdala thinking. And and, and Marianne and knows better than anyone um, when you're operating from the amygdala, you tend to do things that you, you really regret. And so we're seeing a lot of businesses um, treating their customers uh, really almost in an outright hostile manner, trying to get them to to pay their invoices uh, when their own businesses, businesses are shut. Um, but then at, this, at, the other, at the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing um, really fantastic businesses rise to the occasion and actually, within a matter of months, create a, a completely new enterprise. So... It is a period of adaptation. Uh, to, to answer your question specifically, I don't believe in a general context the market reflects any remote uh, remote semblance of, of what's happening in, on, on the ground in the economy. And I think you see that with a lot of executives ash, actually issuing equity in the most recent weeks. Um, there it's, that's, the, that's sort of them voting with their, with, with their treasuries.
2: You know, Stephen Wood's on the line, and he's and he's talking about uh, sort of how different business sectors have been responding to this. You and I, Stephen, we're talking about uh, landlords in particular and the, the housing crisis, which has been exacerbated during this pandemic, the rent crisis in this country. Talk to me a little bit, and my understanding is that you have a little bit of delay, so just bear with us with that delay, folks, because I want to get this answer. Talk to us about how landlords have missed the mark, many of them, in terms of dealing with this cr- housing crisis, rent crisis in America.
5: So the amygdala is, is, is live and well with most landlords because their backs are against the wall. They have debt obligations that they need to satisfy uh, that they can't actually uh, go into forbearance on. And so what they're doing, many, many landlords, particularly in the office and the retail space, are, are outright treating their, their their customers, their tenants, in a, in a hostile manner and i think that these are going to end up being permanent destructions in relationships that are happening there um, it, we're not really seeing it as much on the on the residential side kevin it's much more on the office and the retail side no surprise to anybody but when a when a when a landlord turn you know basically threatens litigation against some of its retail clients who are forced to remain closed right now um, I, I don't see those relationships being able to make it to the other side, and, and some of these assets with very, very, very stretched balance sheets are going to have a very hard time uh, basically returning back to any sense of normal.
2: Hey, Stephen Wood, thank you so much for your insights. Uh, We'll definitely have you back on the program. Appreciate that uh, for your time on that. Coming up, we check in with John Sitalides and more with Marianne Williamson. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg uh, Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. It's Friday, folks. It's Friday, folks. It really is interesting to hear what Stephen had to say about how different business sectors, if they're not connecting one-on-one with the individual, well, then they're not going to make it. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and this China tension is it a new Cold War. That's where we're going to. Con- that's where we are going to continue the conversation with John Sidolidis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State Department. John, how are you? How's the family? How are the boys? <laughs>
6: Well, thank God we're all healthy and well, uh, trying to keep our wits about us and uh, longing for a haircut, Kevin.
2: <laughs> Wait, so you haven't, Marion Williamson's here, you haven't, you haven't done the barbershop? I was cutting my own hair week three.
6: No, Governor Northam won't allow them. I think they just opened up literally 45 minutes ago. I think 5 o'clock today is when that re- that next phase of reopening uh, advances to the barbershop. So John, you advise the, the State Department, we'll but
2: you can't pull out a pair of clippers and help give a buzz cut to the boys? John, come on.
6: I'm not a lawbreaker. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what do you make of these escalating tensions between the U.S. and China? Uh, and and, and is, is this really the start of a new Cold War between the U.S. and China, John?
6: Well, uh, Kevin, let me just put some context to this, because what we have here really is the culmination of a bipartisan American failure to understand that China was always biding its time until it was ready to compete with the United States, for global dominance. And this is probably the most glaring failure of foreign policy of the past 20 years. And history will likely look back and say among the greatest strategic blunders since World War II. So now you have this bipartisan support for a campaign of accelerating the strategic disengagement that China launched in 2015 when they announced a the policy of achieving technology independence from the U.S. and the West. And that was propelled in 2018, when General Secretary Xi Jinping achieved unbridled power and eliminated term limits. And ever since then, we've seen this aggressive foreign policy in Hong Kong, against Taiwan, in the South China Sea, sinking Vietnamese boats. And now, the last week or two weeks, two incursions on the territory of India. So uh, we have a number of activities that the U.S. is finally responding to, and I think with this national security law that's being imposed on Hong Kong, you see, again, sweeping bipartisan support for the president's policy of perhaps targeted sanctions against Hong Kong, a very different relationship because of Hong Kong no longer being autonomous, and trying to hold China accountable for repeated violations of promises, commitments, and international treaties.
2: John, Johnson Cetelides is on the line. He's a geopolitical strategist at Trill. Advisors, Diplomacy Consultant to the State Department. John, you know, you mentioned India. The U.S. can't, or uh, do you think the U.S. needs to get Europe on board? Europe has has had a very different approach. Every country in Europe has had a very different approach to how they've been handling China as it relates to doing business on 5G, as it relates to doing business uh, in, in the energy sector. And does Europe and the United States need to be speaking from the same on the same page when dealing with beijing
6: well this goes back to the classic problem kevin of european foreign policy right who do you speak to to see who speaks for europe there really isn't any unified voice and when times are good europe is unified and when times are rough every country starts looking out for its own interests so i think we'll be working with the uk especially the Chinese have already threatened the United Kingdom if they offer passport privileges to those who held U.K. passports before 1997 when, when Hong Kong was handed over to the Chinese. And the Chinese are now threatening the U.K. with retaliation. China is isolating itself in the region and globally by these very aggressive actions against a whole host of countries with which it enjoyed very good relations up until just a year or so ago. And I think especially, Kevin, given the way China has concealed its activities regarding the unleashing of the virus on the world, I think you'll see a lot more popular support in individual European countries for a very serious high-level review of their diplomatic and economic relations with China, especially if the Chinese government continues with these policies.
2: Well, and also, I mean, you mentioned populism in in Europe. Look no further than here. You've got, according to the latest Morning Consul poll, 71% of Democrats want more transparency from China. 80, more than 80% of Republicans want more transparency from China. That's just a Morning Consul poll. That's not even, you know... And that's just one question. So I mean, it, this is not, this is not a controversial thing here that we're talking about. But you know, so much of the reporting and the framing around this discussion, John Sidolides, is has been that Europe is is in is in disarray geopolitically, and the United States is divided. And I hear that. I hear that. That said, did, Cha- did Xi Jinping miscalculate? Did Xi Jinping make any miscalculations about? The wealthy, the wealthy class in China, they're going to have questions if if uh, especially if they've got some financial interest in Hong Kong and all of a sudden that financial luxury is going to be revoked. I mean, is he going to feel pressure? This isn't like it's one person in China running policy. This is a nuanced country with nuanced political ideologies and nuanced uh, uh, different uh, constituencies.
6: You raised some very important points and questions here, Kevin. However, there is a difference in governance under General Secretary Xi. He does have near absolute power in a way that none of his predecessors, going back to Deng Xiaoping, had when China was run more by consensus among party elders. So Xi Jinping is going back to the Mao Zedong model and actually does have near absolute authority. But on Hong Kong, keep in mind that the Chinese Communist Party has been planning this transition since 1997, and it's why you've seen all this investment going into major financial uh, megalopolises like Shanghai and Shenzhen, so that, you know, where Hong Kong was accountable for 25, 27 percent of the Chinese economy in 1993, it's only valued at about 3 percent of the Chinese economy today. So it's going to be swallowed up by these larger financial centers yeah. in Shanghai and Shenzhen. Interesting. So this, the idea, I think, now is, A, no more Chinese democracy for the people of Hong Kong, and also to send a geopolitical message to Taiwan, which has been advancing its own international stature because they handle the virus so much more effectively than anyone else, and they want to make sure that Taiwan gets no extra legroom, no additional space in any international organization. They right. can't invade Taiwan, but they can send a message to the world, we're going to move into Hong Kong and we'll threaten to escalate against Taiwan if you force us to do so.
2: All right, John Sitalini with the uh, the truth on a Friday about U.S. and China. Geopolitical strategist, trilogy advisors, and diplomacy consultant to the State Department, not to mention an, all, an all-star dad. John, thanks for checking in. Uh, give my regards to the family. Maria Williamson, we've got like a minute left. You know, you hear that. You listen to John. But I still, I, I maybe it's because I'm younger. But I still want to say, okay, I get it. They're the number two largest economy in the world. But we're still number one. And the United States is still the leader in innovation. And the United States is still the leader in innovation in democracy in the world. That's still, still, even today, has to be worth something.
4: Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not enrolled in your belief that we're the leader in democracy. I don't think that we're the country that is upholding democracy more than any other, unfortunately. And as far as our being. Our ideals do. Our ideals are exceptional. That doesn't mean we are embodying those ideals and we need to be honest with ourselves about that. Also in terms of our being a bigger economy, so many sectors of our economy are bought and sold by China that we have to really think about what it means to say that we are number one. I agree with John, this has been going on for so long. We didn't, China has warned that this could lead to a uh, to a cold war, but there's a certain kind of cold trade war that's been going on for so long. They didn't have to send soldiers. All they need to do is uh, is send trade negotiators. And we've been such whores for short-term profit for U.S. corporations. We've practically sold this country. Okay, I got to ask China. you a fun question because it's yeah. Friday and that's okay. just too.
2: What are you streaming? What have you been streaming through the pandemic?
4: Oh, I have been obsessed with The Crown and can't wait. Okay. I can't wait for season four. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We're gonna leave it there. Mary Williamson's is watching The Crown just like the rest of us. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Much more coming up next week. Have a great, safe weekend. Happy B-Day, JFK. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.